Awesome, guys. Uh, well, Merry Christmas. It is so great to be gathering the week of Christmas. If you heard some random beeping in that video, uh, that may have been the construction project in the back. So if you haven't seen any progress there lately, there is stuff happening back there now, and it is cool and big and loud and uh, interrupts our videos. So it's great, though. It's going forward. I love it. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Oh, man, we have such a privilege this morning, guys. We get the privilege to gather together, to sing about the birth of the Savior, to open the Word. Um, and this is a familiar passage. I'm going to warn you, this is a passage that perhaps, if you're not even familiar with the Bible, if you don't usually go to church, you may be familiar with this passage, uh, if it, nothing else from Linus uh, has probably read it to you at some point. So, Here's what I'm going to pray. As we read these words, let's remember that these are the living and active words of God, and let's pray that we get a fresh vision and a fresh glimpse of who God is through this as we celebrate Christmas this year. I think this year we need Christmas more than ever, but I think this year also has the potential that Christmas will, become, will begin to mean much more to us than it ever has before. So Luke chapter 2 Verse 1, this is God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. This is the very word of God. Lord, may you speak to us and open our eyes today. Amen. Well, how many of you are fans of the classic holiday movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Who likes the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, now that, that was easy to do. Here's what I want you to do. Be honest if you do not like It's a Wonderful Life. Like somebody's made you watch it at some point and you're just... And, and you dread the holiday movie time where everybody's sitting around and everybody goes, let's put on a holiday movie. And you're thinking, not It's a Wonderful Life, not It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and I have to confess, sometimes I am in that category. Look, most of the time I'm in that category. And now here's the problem, though. My dad makes us all watch It's a Wonderful Life every year. So as November rolls around, my anxiety begins to grow that like, okay, here it comes. It's a wonderful life. Now listen, listen, listen. Hear me on this. I love the last 10 minutes of It's a Wonderful Life. But the previous movie to that is the most stressful like hour and a half you can spend in front of a screen. It's the charming holiday story of war, disability, bankruptcy, and suicide, right? Like, that's not what you want to turn to. Like, what do we, I want a holiday film. You know, like, 
and everyone's like, oh, let's just gather around and watch it. And, and, and I realize something happens. My dad and I have different experiences watching It's a Wonderful Life, okay? And, he, and, and my experience is one of anxiety, fear, and dread. And I realized this week that, that actually It's a Wonderful Life gets at one of the core fears I have as like a human. And here's the core fear. I fear being forgotten. I hate the moment in the movie where they, the bank has run out of money, everybody's demanding their money back, he, he, you know, George is turning, like, wh- where can he find help? Nobody's there to help him, nobody seems like is, is there for him, even his family, there's distance and isolation, and he ends up utterly alone on this bridge, totally seemingly forgotten by everybody, except for perhaps one person upstairs who sends him a reminder, right? But that, that moment of being forgotten is the worst. And then you sort of live in that moment in suspense until the very end of the movie where you finally answer the question, was George really forgotten or not? Now, where am I going with that? Well, if you read Luke chapter 2 and you read it not with the holiday lenses we normally read it with, if you just read the text, what it appears is that this nameless, faceless, Judean, poor, blue-collar couple has been forgotten by the entire world around them. This is not just a charming, warm-hearted holiday story. Like, oh, look at this couple. Look at the cute animals. No, it wasn't cute. There were animals. Like, if there's one thing you do not want near you when you're having a baby, it's a barn of animals, right? Like, that is not what you're going for. So, why then is this one of the most beloved, remembered, retold stories of all earthly history? It's because there is a contrast between what it appears this story is at first glance and what it actually reveals as we dig into it. There's two halves of what we're going to explore in the text, what it appears and then what Advent actually reveals. So first, let's look at what it appears. What it appears is that Mary and Joseph have been forgotten. Now, remember, Luke, the writer of this gospel, is giving an account, and perhaps in some ways he's having to defend the birth of Christ because he's claiming Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings, and yet his birth seems like he's been utterly and his parents have been utterly forgotten. Look at the the marks of this here. First, it appears that this couple is just pushed and pulled by forces far beyond their control. Now, the reason Mary and Joseph even end up going to Bethlehem is not because they wanted they had a free long weekend and they're like, "What should we do? Let's go to Bethlehem." No. Mary's super pregnant. They live 90 miles away. Up and actually going to Bethlehem would be a climb of 2600 feet. And so this would be like from SNL, like SNL Paso, walking to Alamogordo when you're nine months pregnant. I don't know any moms that are like, yeah, sign me up for that. That sounds fun. No, it is not fun, right? It seems as though they're pushed and pulled. Now, but why are they doing this? Well, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, right? Now, 
What it means is Caesar, the absolute ruler, he doesn't care about Mary. He doesn't care about these people in backwater Judea. He doesn't, he doesn't care about anybody. He wants a census, and if people have to stop what they're doing, pick up, travel for days, go do the census, and go back, they're missing their crops, they're missing their businesses, they're having babies along the way, doesn't matter, Caesar says so. And so it seems like they're just getting pushed and pulled around by the powers of Caesar over them. And even much more you know, much more important and powerful political forces behind Caesar, economic forces, all of this stuff. Mary and Joseph seem like a little tiny boat that's at the middle of a big ocean being tossed and turned with no control over their lives. Maybe this year you felt something similar. In the, in the, the stories that I've heard from folks from the church, this is definitely a year in which we feel our lack of control, where we feel pushed and I talked to one business owner that was getting squeezed from all sides. He happened to own a franchise, and not only was he getting pushed by the economic forces, by the pandemic forces, he was, he was sort of under certain rules of what he could and couldn't do as a franchisee, and, and, he was, and he just admitted, I feel out of control. I feel pushed on every side. Maybe you felt like that. That's what it appears is happening, but it's not. Second, what appears that happening is that it appears that Mary and Joseph have been disregarded. It says that they laid him, Jesus, the king of kings, in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I went and looked at some historical sources, and there's a wide variety of what people think the stable was, right, and the manger. So some people would say there's, you know, the inn was a kind of a courtyard, and the, the, the animals were in the middle, kind of under a rough shelter, and that's where they had the baby. Other people said, no, no, it was off away from the main house, maybe in a cave, or it was... It, it, the one thing in common that everybody does agree on is that the stable was not nice, warm, comfortable, and under uh, a lot of care and attention from the people around it. The reason they ended up there is because there was nowhere else to go. Look, they, they arrive probably traveling late in the day. They arrive later than everybody else, all the other travelers, because they're traveling with a pregnant lady. And, and the town is full of people who are there to take part in the census. And there is no like shelter of any kind available. And, and Joseph doesn't have the money to get somebody to leave their room. He doesn't have the power or influence to get somebody to leave their room. And what it appears is that nobody cares for them enough to leave their room so that they end up having this child out in the open. This town is full of frenetic activity, people coming and going this way and that way. And it feels like Mary and Joseph are just pushed off to the side, disregarded by everyone. But maybe Maybe this year that's what you've felt at some point. You, you feel like I, I've been disregarded. Nobody sees me. Nobody even knows the details of my situation. What, what comes to mind is when, when we were having our kids in the hospital, my job was always to work the call button, right? That was my contribution to the labor process of my wife is I've, I've got the call button. So if you need something, let me know. I'll push the button, right? And I remember at different points pushing the call button to get the nurse and, and there was a, sh a small delay. And I remember thinking, we, we've been abandoned. We've been disregarded. Nobody in this hospital cares about us. Obviously, we're sitting in a first-world medical hospital, right, with monitors and all stuff. But I'm just thinking, I'm pushing the button, and no one is coming immediately. And then they finally come on, and they're like, sir, can I help you? Yes, yes, thank God. We need more ice chips, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> like, okay, sir, thank you, you know? And then a call back five minutes later, just checking on the ice chips. 
okay, sir, you know, like, I think at one point they took the buzzer away from me because I felt disregarded with 30 seconds of inattention in a crucial moment. What do you think Mary Joseph felt? What do you think they experienced? It seems as though reading the text that they are disregarded. Third, it seems as though the promises God had made to his people would be or were unfulfilled. Now, it actually is sort of a painful irony that, that Luke is bringing up the fact that Joseph is of the house of David, right? He's going to David's birthplace because he's of the lineage of David. But, but Joseph traveling back to David's birthplace, he's not traveling as a king out of a long line of glorious kings. He's not traveling as a powerful person or a ruler out of a long line of rulers. He is traveling as sort of a, a rough, blue-collar descendant of a line of broken, humiliated kings, right? That, that's, and, and in fact, he's getting shoved and pushed around by another king far above him that seems more powerful above him, Right? And he's going to this forgotten corner of the Roman Empire, the city of Bethlehem, a forgotten village. And in some ways, this journey and this city are emblematic of all of the, uh, you know, sort of the unfulfilled promises given to Israel. Remember that God told David, he told David, somebody from your family will sit on the throne forever, right? That's kind of the promise that hangs over the house of David. And what we see in Luke 2 is a small, struggling, broken descendant of King David goes to a backwater town, and that's the glorious return, right? It seems as though that promise would be unfulfilled, and it was unfulfilled. Maybe today, maybe this year you felt that there have been unfulfilled promises from God, promises for God to do something or to watch you or shepherd you or be with you or walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death, and, and you feel like, man, I, I just... I don't see it. It seems unfulfilled. And last, it appears that Mary and Joseph are cast down. By all earthly accounts, they are cast down, not only economically, not only sort of in terms of power, but also even in terms of basic social standing and shame, right? It it, it says in verse 5 that Joseph was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child right? So, so here's what would eventually spread through the small town of Bethlehem. As, as people are, you know, are coming in for the census, I'm sure people are saying, oh, who's that? You know, oh, wow, that person looks like they've done well for themselves. Oh, that's so, you know, Simeon's cousins. Or this person, oh, yeah, that, that's my second cousin. It seems like he's got a great business or, or he's advancing socially. And, and who are those people? Oh, that's, that's Joseph. You know the story about him, his well, the girl he was betrothed to got pregnant, and so we don't know if it was Joseph, we don't know if she was unfaithful, whatever it is. And you see the whispers begin to start about them, right? Even socially, it seems as though they're cast down, cast away from polite society. Now this, this, this text is true of Mary and Joseph, but if you back up and look at sort of the Bible as a whole, this is also the situation of humanity as a whole. Humanity, because of our choice to turn away from God, um, have, we found ourselves cast down. We found so many of the, the, the purposes we were made for to be unfulfilled. We, we, we seem to be pushed and pulled by all these forces around us, but, but we've chosen to give ourselves to them instead of to God, right? And, and as a result, 
humanity has sort of this deep longing and fear in it that we, that we have been forgotten. We will be forgotten. The irony is that we, we feel, what we fear most in our heart of hearts is being forgotten by God, but in sin, what we do is we turn away from God, and then we fear, oh, I, God has forgotten me, right? This is the position all humanity is in. Just it, Joseph is, and his line and his house, the house of David are sort of an illustration of this, where they, for years and years, ruler after ruler, turned away from God, went away from God, and then later who are wondering, oh, where is God, right? It seems as though he's been forgotten. The house of David's been forgotten. Perhaps even that humanity has been forgotten, but that is not the case. One, one note from Kent Hughes, one of the commentators on this, he says, no child born into the world that day seemed to have lower prospects. The son of God was born into the world not as a prince, but as a pauper, we must never forget that this is where Christianity began and where it always begins, with a sense of need, a graced sense of one's insufficiency. Christ himself, setting the example, comes to the needy. He is born only to those who are poor in spirit. You see what Kent Hughes is saying? He's saying, listen, if you feel, if you feel lowly or forgotten or cast out or needy, that's the perfect place then to receive the good news of Christmas. So what is the good news of Christmas? The good news of Christmas is that far from what it appears that we've been forgotten or Mary and Joseph have been forgotten, the good news is that this account actually reinforces perhaps more than any other that God remembers his people. And let's break down how that works. How does this text illustrate that God remembers his people? Well, I want you to flip back one page. Because see, God gave Mary and Joseph to some extent a divine perspective on the events that are, that are taking place here. And Luke preloads it. He includes this divine perspective before the account of Jesus. And when we see it, it changes the way that we see everything. Luke 1, this is Mary's song, the God-given perspective she has on, on these events. 146, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And you think, what? how is that possible, right? You're this poor, shamed girl. Having, you know, here she's going to tell you. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From behold, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away. Way empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. When you take her perspective and overlay it onto Luke chapters 2, you begin to see everything in a different light. The first thing you see is that far from being pushed and pulled by forces outside of them, they are held in this story, absolutely held by the hands of God. Look at how active God is in Mary's song, how active God is in the events of the incarnation and birth of Christ. These are just some of the phrases that we just read. He has looked, 
He has done great things. He has shown. He has scattered. He has exalted. He has brought down. He has filled. He has sent as he spoke. See, what's happening is far from this this chain of events being out of control, this is God controlling the events around them. Where they might think, well, Caesar is the one pushing and pulling us. Well, there is one above Caesar, Caesar pushing and pulling him, right? According to the divine plan, lining everything up as it should be, right? That you might think, well, why in the world would, would this poor pregnant girl be forced to travel so far from her homeland? Well, that travel to Bethlehem was a fulfillment of God's prophecy about where Jesus would be born and, and, and a, a foreshadowing that he would be like his forefather David and even greater David. And the humble nature of his birth was signifying what kind of savior he would be, not a, 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 a savior only associated with the, the powerful and the rich, but rather the gentle and the lowly and the humble. In fact, even this long road that Mary and Joseph traveled was probably built by Caesar. And those same Roman roads built by Caesar that he was so proud of that he felt like he had such great control of his empire, God would use those very roads to carry the announcement of the advent, the arrival of God into this world and the good news of Jesus. You see, far from this being out of control, this is firmly in the control of God. God was the one watching them, holding them, sovereignly orchestrating these events. You know, few weeks back, I had some guys over in my backyard, and we were tossing around the question. uh, Don't worry, it was it was according to the city orders, et cetera, et cetera. And um, and we were tossing around the question, what have you learned this year? And and it actually kind of turned into a retelling of of what God has done in our lives, and where it often seems like, man, this situation was terrible, that situation was terrible. One guy just shared, you know what? I would have never expected this. But I needed a season of rest. I needed a season with my family, and God used this to give that to me. Another person shared, you know what? I've been str- I had been struggling with trusting God, and man, this has really, really forced me to trust God this year. So when I prayed that at the beginning of the year, the Lord was like, I got you. Um, right? Another person shared, it's helped them step back and think about their future and where their life is going. And you just see the hands of God in a hundred ways, holding his people, guiding his people, sustaining his people. And when we look back on 2020, here's what I believe. I believe we will not just see a record of tragedy. We will, with divine perspective, learn to see a record of God's faithfulness, that God has sustained us and held us even through this. That's what it reveals. Second thing it reveals, God regarded God regarded. Mary sings in verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So far from being disregarded and and, and this birth in this middle of nowhere town without adequate medical supervision or help, that actually was God regarding his people. Mary says, this is God regarding me, looking at Me, actually seeing me. Think about what this says about God, that the mother of the Son of God, the one that would bear God's Son, was not the richest girl in Jerusalem, not the most powerful, not the one in the palace, but this sort of poor, unknown young woman that everybody else overlooked. The Lord saw her. 
What does that say about God? It says that God's eyes do not just land where our eyes land, right? They don't just stop at the rich, the powerful, the beautiful, the charming, the whatever, the successful. The eyes of the Lord are, are looking out to the lowly, to the forgotten, to the disregarded, and he comes to them. Like, th- this is absolutely unreal. One of the folks um, that was in the, doing it, part of the video project that we uh, did this week or this month and that we're going to show in a minute at the end of the sermon, she just, we were asking, okay, what are the things that you've been through this year? And she, I loved her honesty. She just said, you know, there are times this year I felt unwanted. I felt unwanted. I thought, man, that, I'm so glad, grateful for her honesty because I think all of us have been there at some point in our lives, and perhaps even this year, we feel like, man, nobody regards us. Nobody wants us. Nobody even sees us. And the birth of Christ is perhaps one of the loudest statements that could be made that God goes to the disregarded and regards them. Isn't that good news? Next, we see that this is not the We don't see in in the end a lack of fulfillment of God's promises. We actually see in Luke 2 the very fulfillment of God's promises, right? As as you could, you know, you could be forgiven for thinking, man, the house of David has fallen pretty far and it looks like it's going to be impossible for God to keep that promise that a king from the house of David would reign eternally. Man, this, this is the descendant of David, this broken old, you know, probably not old, broken kid carpenter with a pregnant wife, like this is, you know, where's the glory of the house of David? And I love Luke right after this. We don't have time to get into this, but right after this, as if to undercut those thoughts, he shares the story of uh, an, a legion of angels appearing on a hillside to these shepherds nearby. And you think, man, if you're going to make a royal announcement, uh, you're going to find the palace guards. You're going to get the town crier. You're going to get the fancy people. You're going to assemble them. You're going to make an announcement. Hey, the king has been born. This is what Caesar would do when a new uh, Caesar was appointed. There'd be proclamations and rejoicing, and it would be like, everybody must rejoice now because, you know, we have a new Caesar. And you're going to enjoy it and smile, right? That's, you know, and, and, and Roman guards are making you do it, right? And, and you think, okay, that's the best Caesar could do. This is what God could do. He doesn't just use, you know, the town crier or the royal, uh, the, the, you know, the royal musicians to announce the birth of his son. He uses a legion of gleaming, terrifying, dazzling angels screaming out, glory to God in the highest, right? The, the, the greatest Davidic king, you could say the Davidic king, was announced in, in a way that points to how he would not just be another king in the line of David, he would be the king in the line of David. In a sense, David, the humble king who ascended to heights of kingly greatness, man, Jesus has got him beat. He was, he was far more humble, and yet his identity far greater than David, the king. Here's the, here's the point. Do you think sometimes, oh, well, God's promises have not been fulfilled. I don't see it being fulfilled. And if I don't see it being fulfilled, it must not be being fulfilled. Luke 2 reminds us, when we do not at first see the fulfillment of God's promises, it is usually because God means to fulfill them in a better way than we could imagine. Let me say that again. 
when you, in your life, see a promise from God and say, I don't see this, Lord, it's usually because God himself says, oh, I am going to keep that promise, but in a better way than you can imagine, just the way that Joseph experienced, oh, Joseph, I'm not just going to keep my promise to your family. I'm going to keep it in a greater way than you can imagine. Look, Joseph's family was hoping for another king in Jerusalem, but God gave them the king of all creation. Joseph's family was hoping for a warrior like David to defeat the Romans, but God gave them a warrior to defeat their greater enemies of sin and death. Joseph's family hoped for a wise and just ruler like Solomon. God gave them the wisest and most just and perfect ruler far greater than Solomon. They hoped for a, another small Davidic dynasty that they could put into the history books. God gave them a king who would reign forever, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And that's what he says, do you see me fulfilling my promise? Last, where we see perhaps Mary and Joseph cast down in the eyes of God, we see them actually in this moment lifted into honor. Mary sings in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You see what Mary is saying? She's saying this, do you know who the son of God has come to? Not the rich, not the powerful, not the mighty, not the full, but God himself has come to the needy and the poor and the hungry in me. And, and Mary sees herself as a divine illustration of God's dealings with his people. This is the way of God. This is what God does. He looks to the cast down and he lifts them up. So, so far from this being a moment of shame for Mary and Joseph, I think based on Luke 1, when the time came and she saw Jesus for the first time, she rejoiced saying, the King of kings the Lord of Lords was born to us, nobodies, people who are disregarded by everyone, not to Herod, not to Caesar, us. We have this honor that we are holding the Son of God in our arms. This is the way that God deals with his people. And all of this, here's what I'm trying to say, all of this is an illustration of this, fact, of this truth that it may appear at times that God has forgotten his people. But look just a little closer, and you will see signs everywhere of the truth that God always remembers his people. And, and there, that, that, let, me, let me end by saying this. Look, in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, there are a lot of stressful moments, right? And I hate going through all the stressful moments. And every time I watch the movie, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen the movie, I end up on the same uh, stomach pain, anxiety-inducing journey that I've been on the year before. And I look over at my dad, and you know what my dad is doing? Like, when Uncle Billy loses the money, the most stressful scene in movie history, you're like, Uncle Billy, what are you doing, right? And, and I look over at my dad. Do you know what my dad's doing? He's just smiling. And I'm, I'm like, 
what, what's wrong with you, Dad? You know, and then I finally figured it out. Do you know why he's smiling? Because he's seen this movie before. <laughs> and he knows that in just a few minutes, these angry town people that seem like they've forgotten George and his family will come parading through and saving his business and his whole living room. This guy that feels forgotten and isolated and alone in just a half hour, my dad knows, it's going to be filled with people singing, rejoicing, throwing money on the table, phone calls from people that he assumed had forgotten him, right? His, his life will be full, and this statement of him surrounded by his family and friends that he is not forgotten will ring out as the credits roll, and my dad already knows that, so he smiles through the first part of the movie, knowing what is coming. That is what Advent is for the Christian. That when we get to times in our lives that we feel forgotten or alone or disgraced or cast down, we remember we've seen this movie before. <laughs> We've seen this movie before. I, I, oh, yeah, I've seen this one before. Uh, the people that seem disgraced and forgotten and God didn't fulfill his promises, in fact, he did it far better than they could have imagined. And, and here's, here's the greatest proof. The greatest proof is not just that God would come from heaven to earth in remembrance of his people. It's, it's also in the mission of that child and why he came from heaven to earth. See, God didn't send Jesus as just a nice gesture. This is not just, oh, I remember you. I'm going to come down and walk around you know, for a little bit so you can think, oh, well, God didn't forget us. And then Jesus goes home. No, this child came on a mission. This king of kings came on a mission, and he came to lay aside his crown and take on the burden of sin and shame and guilt and failure from his people. That is the reason that they were cast away from God. That's the reason they were disgraced. That's the reason that they were far off from God. So God sent his son to come and take all of their sin, all of their shame on him. So that what? So that he, by being cast down, could lift up his people. So that he, by being disgraced, would bring honor to his people. So that he, who appeared at times, but maybe God would not fulfill his promise, would fulfill every promise made to his people. This is the Savior we celebrate every Christmas. And yet we wait. Perhaps 2020, more than any other year, reminds us that we wait. As we have said goodbye to dear members of the church, and we wait. As we watch people struggle with sickness or financial difficulty or loneliness, we wait. But Advent reminds us we've seen this movie before. And at just the right time, the one who came to the manger will come back for us all. That's what we celebrate this Christmas, church. And so as a testimony of that, actually, one last thing. If you don't know that or believe that or if that is not true for you, believe on Christ today. If you feel forgotten, believe on Christ and find in him a God who never forgets his people. But you must come to him 
You must come to the manger. You must be willing to, to come to the child who at first appears like a failure and see him as the triumph of God for you. Confess your sins, claim him as king, and he will never be forgotten. So we're going to have a number of folks from our church did a testimony project that we're going to watch, and I feel like this is the most appropriate way we could possibly end today. We're going to see their testimonies visually, and then the band's going to lead us in singing to this, this great God.